Jew, it wasn't John Lennon. <laughs> For the recording, that was Tan Ju Kwang. All right, everyone on the internet, okay. Um, now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Okay. It was Winston Churchill. And he was talking about a battle in World War II uh, when he made that, well, famous statement. Uh, but actually, it's an apt way of describing the passage that we have before us today, isn't it? If Genesis is a book of beginnings, then this passage is the end of the beginning. Right? But before we have a look at this passage, uh, let me just remind us where we were last week. Last week, we saw how Jacob died. And we saw that he died well. Jacob died looking back on the promises of God. Uh, promises that he would have many descendants, that God would give them the land in Canaan and he would bless them. Which we saw was the equivalent of the promises that God has given to us in the gospel. And so Jacob died giving thanks both for the covenanted, the promised blessings, as well as the uncovenanted blessings. That is, he is grateful for the blessings that God has promised and given him, and also grateful for the things, for the things that God has, has given him along the way, which he never promised at all, but he just gave. And Jacob died looking forward to the future, when God would give him the promised land to his descendants. And that promised land, we said, is a place of blessing, like, like Eden was a place of blessing before the fall. And because he knew that that land was his home, not Egypt, and that God was going to give it to his descendants, he wanted to be buried there. And so to emphasize his wish, he actually makes it twice. Um, in chapter 47, he's talking to Joseph. In 47 verse 29, he calls Joseph and he makes him swear, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And then, again, at the end of chapter 49, uh, with his last breaths, he's talking to his sons, and he says, in uh, halfway through verse 29, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, where Abraham bought, and there they buried Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. You see, Jacob wants to be buried in the promised land with the recipients of the promises that have gone before. Even though the next stage of God's plan to give him the land hasn't been put into effect yet. And we saw that that's the same for us as well. When we come to die, when we come to die, we want to be trusting in God's promises looking back to what God has done for us in Christ. And we want to be looking forward to the future. And the place that we have now is in, in Christ, isn't it? That's where the blessing is. It is in Christ. And even after death, we will be with Christ. And we long to be there with the recipients of God's promises who have gone before. As we wait for the next stage of God's promised land, that is the Resurrection of the dead and the new heaven and new earth. Our inheritance, our land. When Jacob died, 
Joseph was with him, as God had promised Jacob. Remember, God had said to Jacob, Joseph, your son, will close your eyes. And, and there he was. And chapter 50 of Genesis picks up the story from the point of, of Jacob's death. Uh, Joseph threw himself on his father's body and cried and kissed him. And he was determined to obey his father's instructions about his burial. But at the same time, he doesn't want to offend the Egyptians. And so, because you see, he has adapted himself as much as possible to the Egyptian culture without compromising on his faith in the promises of God or his obedience to God. And so he, he tells the physicians to embalm his father, as the Egyptians did for prominent people. The important embalming process took 40 days. The time for mourning was 70 days. The Egyptians mourn for Jacob because well, he is Joseph's father and Joseph's their leader. And after this whole mourning period is over, having done the right thing by the Egyptians, Joseph puts in his request to Pharaoh. He goes through a member of the household because, well, he can't approach Pharaoh directly because he's unclean, having been in mourning. And he's diplomatic, so he doesn't want to say the father doesn't want to get buried in Egypt. Instead, he emphasizes that he wants to be buried in his own tomb, which he prepared in Canaan. And that the old man had made him promise to bury him there. The message is found in verse 4 and 5. If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Well, Pharaoh agreed. So Joseph went up to bury his father. But he didn't go alone. The funeral procession was huge. Look at verse 7 and 8 and see all the people who were going. Well, there were the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. Wow, this is big shots. Right? And then there's also the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. This is a huge, huge entourage. Though, because they're not going permanently, they leave their children and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt. Now, in modern Malaysia, if you want a really grand funeral procession, what do you need? Exactly. You need police. You need the outriders. And, verse 9, And they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. Okay, they had that as well. So it was a very great company. A very great company. You know, one day, God's people would come up out of Egypt again, following a similar route. And when you look at the language here, it's, it's actually the same language that's going to be used to describe the Exodus 400 years later. Israelites who were by then going to be slaves in Egypt were going to go up to the promised land. And you find in that story, servants of Pharaoh, young children, flocks, herds, chariots, horsemen. But of course the configuration there is very different. Because by the time you get to the Exodus, the children, the flocks and the herds go with them because that's a permanent move. And the chariots and horses are no longer the outriders, they're the enemy pursuing them. But the parallels are still there. And in our passage, Jacob, or Israel, returns to the promised land. 
In the book of Exodus, Israel, the nation that comes out from him, will return to the promised land. Jacob's final journey prefigures Israel's journey in the end. Well, the great funeral procession crossed the Jordan and came into the land. And they camped out at a place called Atan. And there, verse 10, they lamented with a very great and grievous lamentation. And Joseph made mourning for his father seven days. This is a big thing. So much so that the Canaanites who lived in the land noticed it. Here is one nomad and his family who had left Egypt some years before. And then now he's died and he's back to him buried. The whole upper echelon of Egypt and everyone with horses and chariots and all come back. What's going on here? It's like if, it's like if Mike Gong migrates to Australia, right? And let's say we don't hear from him for many, many, many years. And then, they laugh. If he, right, if, 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 if he dies... And, and, his, and his body is brought back. And when he comes, there's a state funeral organized by the Aussies. Right? They send their whole cabinet. And even an aircraft carrier, if they have one by then, comes along and, you know, to honor him in his death. And we're like, wow, what did, what did Mike do when he went to Australia? You know? huh? right. The Canaanites, they, they see all this. And, and, and they rename the place Abel Mizraim, the morning of Egypt. Thus, verse 12, his sons did for him as he commanded them. And his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Jacob was laid to rest in the land that God had promised him. While still waiting, God's promises to be fulfilled. Now why do you think God gives us such a detailed picture of Jacob's grand burial here? I mean Moses could have just said, you know, Jacob was buried back in Canaan, oh, that's, that's it. Same point, isn't it? What? Here we've got details of the glory of his funeral procession. What a wonderful Well, I wonder if we're meant to have this picture of this funeral in our minds. I mean, this funeral points to, to something even greater. This is how God treats his people after death. Remember, Israel going back to the land after death is a picture that shows the faithfulness of God to his promises, even after death. He promised Jacob that he would, and now he does. And the equivalent for us is departing to be with Christ. For brothers and sisters, if we die like Jacob, trusting in the promises of God in the gospel, then we can be assured of a glorious homecoming. Not a grand funeral, but better. A great reception on the other side. As Jacob went to the land in glory while waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled, we too will go to be with Christ in glory while we wait for the promises to be fulfilled. And when those promises are fulfilled, we shall be raised from the dead 
to inherit a new creation, our final promised land. After the funeral, they all go back to Egypt as planned. And Joseph's brothers got scared. Maybe he had been good to them all this time for the sake of the father. But now that, that he was dead, the, the, Joseph might take the opportunity to, to get even. Verse 15 they saw the father was dead and they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the, all the evil that we did to him and so what do they do? they send a message to Joseph they send a mediator and here's the message, verse 16 your father gave us this command before he died say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father The story about the father's wish may or may not be true, huh? If you ask me to guess, I think they're bluffing. You think so too, Leon? I think so. But whatever, I don't know. I think that they figure that the best chance they have is by evoking their father's name. But verse 17 says that Joseph wept. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You see, getting this message was an emotional thing for Joseph. Up to this point, he has, he has dealt kindly with them. He hasn't treated them the way they deserved. He hasn't taken revenge for the bad things they did to him. But neither do we have any record of them seeking forgiveness. But here, for the very first time, we hear them acknowledging that what they did was evil. Here, when they're under, when they're scared, and they're under stress, and they don't know what he's going to do to them, finally they go, plead for forgiveness. And after they've sent their message, then they come in person and throw themselves at his mercy. Verse 18, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Remember how Joseph had a dream about them bowing before him back in chapter 37? Right at the beginning of the story? It was fulfilled long ago when they came to Egypt asking for food. They bowed before him. But he, he, here it's fulfilled again. Right when they came to Egypt for food, they bowed before him. They bowed before him as a great man, the, the ruler of Egypt. Now they bow before him as the one who, who holds their life in his hands. And they know they've treated him badly. And they fall down before him pleading for mercy. They had sold him as a slave to Egypt and now they offer themselves to him as slaves in return. So what's Joseph going to do? Take revenge? Seek their lives? No, he says to them in verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Joseph knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to us. We are not the ones who seek revenge. We are not the ones who do the execution and judge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And 
Luke, he also sees God's hand in all that happened. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. He's not excusing them. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You intended evil. You wanted to harm me. But God intended it for good to save many people. You see, friends, nothing escapes God's plan. What the brothers did was evil and wrong. And yet, God still had it under control. And God was intending it for good. Because through what happened to Joseph, many lives were saved. Through what happened to Joseph, the family was saved from the famine. The Egyptians were saved from the famine. People from other nations were saved from the famine. You see, God's promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his descendant was being fulfilled in a, in a minor way through Joseph's provision of grain. But the salvation wasn't just from a famine. The true fulfillment was going to come through another descendant of Jacob 1900 years later. And so the family of Jacob must survive. And because the, famine, the family survives the famine through the suffering of Joseph, the line goes on until ultimately it reaches Jesus. And through Jesus, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Joseph spoke even better than he knew. Because through Jesus, we are saved too. The brothers at the cistern, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's the paradox the Bible keeps presenting to us. Both human evil and God's good plans are being carried out at the same time in the same events. And it's true in that story, it's true throughout the story of the Bible, and it's true in our lives as well. Romans 8.28 reminds us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And that is true for us even if we cannot see it. I don't think Joseph would have been able to see it when he was taken and stripped and thrown into the cistern. I don't think he would have been able to figure out what God was doing when he, when he was sold into slavery into Egypt. I don't think he had an insight into God's purposes when he was falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. What was going through his head all those years? But he remained faithful to God and in spite of everything, God was with him. And my Christian brother or sister, I don't know what's happening in your life right now, but you may feel very much like Joseph. Abandoned, rejected, betrayed, victim of injustice. Your cry might be, why me? That's not fair. But as God was with Joseph, God will be with you. Never will I leave you, he said. Never will I forsake you. Your suffering will not be wasted if you trust God and remain faithful. No matter how unlikely it seems, God will bring good out of evil. God will bring good out of the pain that you face. You may 
not be able to see it now. But one day, whether it's on this side of the grave or on the other, it'll be made plain. We can look back and say, ah, yes, so-and-so meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Because God has promised that in all things, He works for your good. And your ultimate good, you know what that is, isn't it? That you become more and more like Christ and ultimately join Him in glory. Be still, my soul, thy God shall undertake to guide the future as He hath the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All that is hidden shall be seen at last. That is God's pattern. That is how God works. People manage for evil. God means it for good. And not just with Joseph. When God himself came to us in the person of Jesus, it happened exactly the same way. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, says to the people of Israel, he says this and I quote, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, coming up on the screen. Coming up now. Yes, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see? Whose plan? Whose fault? God's plan. They, they crucified. They killed by the hands of lawless men. God was in control, yet wicked men put Jesus to death. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And God did mean it for good, didn't he? Because through the, rest, through the death of Jesus, we, we have forgiveness. And eternal life. Because he was obedient to death, God has, God has raised him and exalted him and made him Lord of all. God brought good out of evil. But Joseph disliked Jesus because God brought good out of the evil that was done to him. But looking back on the whole story of Joseph, we remember Joseph was like Jesus in many ways. We talked about some of these before. Joseph is the wise man in whom God's Spirit dwelt. And Jesus is the one on whom was the Spirit. And Him is, He is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the chosen one. And Joseph was the chosen one. Joseph was chosen by God to rule over his brothers. Jesus is the chosen one to be ruler of his people. Joseph was chosen to save God's people from famine and death. Jesus was chosen to save God's people from sin. Joseph saved his people through suffering and rejection. Jesus saved his people through suffering and rejection and death on the cross. Joseph was a victim of jealousy and injustice. Jesus was a victim of jealousy and injustice. Joseph was faithful through his sufferings. Jesus was faithful through his sufferings. God brought Joseph through his sufferings to be the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh. And God raised Jesus from the dead to be the ruler of all. And remember, if Joseph points forward to Jesus, remember who we were like in the story? Remember? It was the brothers, wasn't it? Right? And remember how the story started with Joseph's dream? It comes true each time the brothers bowed to him. Joseph suffered to save his brothers from the coming famine. And, but the only way they could benefit from his suffering, the only way they could get the grain, the only way they could be saved from the famine was to come and bow at his feet. In fact, 
The whole world had to come and bow before Joseph to get that life-giving grace. And friends, you and I, and indeed anyone and everyone, must bow before Jesus and acknowledge His supremacy if we are to enjoy the salvation that He has purchased on the cross. But the brothers didn't just bow when they needed the grain. Today we see they bowed down. In fact, they threw themselves before Joseph when they realized what he could do to them and how great their guilt was before him. And like the brothers before Joseph, we stand guilty before Jesus. We have sinned and rebelled against his lordship. We deserve eternal death. And yet Jesus in his love took our punishment for us. It was our sin, our selfishness, our rebellion which drove him to the cross. And like those brothers, our only hope is in his mercy. And knowing God's providence, knowing God's judgment, Joseph forgave his brothers. He says to them in verse 21, So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, spoke kindly to them. And that is how Jesus will treat us if we come to him to be forgiven. Do not fear, he said. He will comfort us. He will speak kindly to us. He will forgive us. For at the cross he has provided for us. And so in this portrait of Joseph we see the shadow of Jesus. And that Lord Jesus who has graciously forgiven us calls upon us to be people who forgive others as well. Is there someone whom you're struggling to forgive? Is there someone whom you want to take revenge on? Get even with? Friends, the grace that we have been shown is the grace we need to show others. You are not responsible for what they do. God will deal with them. That's them and God. But you are responsible for how you act and what you do in response to them. God has forgiven you in Jesus. Be ever willing to forgive others. Repay no one evil for evil. Leave vengeance to God, the righteous judge. That's what Joseph did. And most importantly, that's what Jesus did. And it might help to remember, when it's hard to do that, that though what they did was wrong, God had a plan in it. And God was using it for your good. Your greatest good is that you become more like Christ in character. And so let this instant be one that God teaches you lessons in forgiveness. That you may be more like the Jesus to whom Joseph pointed.
last part of the narrative summarizes the rest of Joseph's life and, and takes us to his death. His whole family remained in Egypt, lived 110 years, the ideal lifespan for Egyptians, a sign of God's blessing. He sees his great-grandchildren, a sign of God's blessing. And Joseph's parting words are recorded in verse 24. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, like his father, Joseph dies well. With the promises of God on his lips and in his heart. Like his father, he wants to end up buried in the land. That's where his heart is. He might have been great in Egypt. He might have accommodated in many ways their culture. He might be leader of all the Egyptians. But his heart was back in the land. And friends, whatever you achieve in this world, don't put your heart here, will you? No matter how great you are, no matter what you do, this is not your home. Your real home awaits you. Perhaps sooner than you think. That's where you put your heart. And because he knew where his home truly lay, <coughs> he made his brothers swear, verse 25, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. You see, unlike his father, his body will remain in Egypt for now. For realistically, you can't be running back to Canaan every time someone dies, can you? And politically, it's probably better that they bury him in his adopted country for now so that Joseph's and their loyalty cannot be questioned. But really, he's waiting for the time when God will bring all his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so, verse 26, Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt where his bones would be kept until the exodus. Now, you remember that Joseph was given many blessings in Egypt but the time had not yet come for Israel to inherit the land. They hadn't reached yet that stage in salvation history. And so the land was one of the blessings that he didn't enjoy yet. It was a blessing that was promised, but it was, it was promised for the future. Hebrews 11 verse 22 says, By faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. He has to wait. He has faith. He knows it's going to come. But he has to wait in the coffin in Egypt until the time. You know, we've seen that Joseph was the savior of God's people and ruler of the nation, so in that sense he was like Jesus. But Joseph was also one of God's people, and in that sense he's like us. And brothers and sisters, there is a lesson here for us as well, because 
there's a way in which Joseph's experience as one of God's people was parallel to ours. We too are up to a certain stage in salvation history. Like Joseph, we have God's blessings and yet we are also waiting for them. Christ has come, but he hasn't yet come again. The kingdom was inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Christ, but it will only be consummated on his return. And so we are in the time that we call the, the now and not yet, the overlap of the ages. On the next slide, we see a picture of that. You see, you've got this, this age down the bottom. Finishes with the second coming. The age to come starts with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, well, there's an overlap, isn't there? Which is where we are. We've been forgiven now, but we still struggle and fight against sin. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places now, but we're still sitting in chaos. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ now, but we still have financial problems and health problems and relationship problems. And we belong to the new creation, but we still live in a fallen world. Joseph longed to be in the land that God was going to give Jacob's descendants. But he was content to remain in Egypt until the right time. And even now, as we live in the old creation while belonging to the new, we need to be patient and content with where we are up to in salvation history. Don't try to force the promises of the new creation into life today like, like those who preach the health and wealth gospel. They say, God promises you perfect health now. If only you have faith. Or God promises to release you from all your financial problems now. If only you have faith. Well, if that's not the gospel, then it's simply not true, is it? Now that's not to say God doesn't bless his people in those areas. Of course he does. But whatever good things God gives us, those are uncovenanted blessings. They're not promises to claim, but gifts to ask God for and thank God for, if he chooses to give them. What God has promised is forgiveness of sins, and his Holy Spirit. Now. He has promised perfect health and prosperity in the new creation. After Jesus returns. And we should look forward to that with eager longing. But we should also be content with where we are in salvation history. And not force the blessings of the future in life today. And yet, by faith, we look forward to them and press on to the day when faith will be made sight. The book of Genesis, the beginning, ends with God's people in Egypt where they will be enslaved. But he ends, it ends with the expectation that God is going to visit them and rescue them 
And he's going to do that in the Exodus, isn't he? As we prepare for Christmas, we are reminded that God has indeed visited us in the person of his Son. He visited us to rescue us from the dominion of sin and Satan and to bring us into his kingdom. And one day he will visit us again. To raise us from the dead if we die before he comes. To rescue us from this world. And to bring us to the new creation. Our eternal inheritance. Our promised land. And that will really be the end. The glorious end. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and precious promises that you have given us in Christ and in his gospel. Thank you that you've made those promises beforehand to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've seen the way they have confidence and faith in your promises. And we pray that we would be people who have the same confidence and faith and in the promises that you've given us in Christ. And that we will continue constantly be looking back at what you have done for us in him and be looking forward to the consummation of all that on his return. Help us to be people who belong to the new creation and have our hearts there. to give our hearts to this world. Help us to be people who are so confident of your promises that we live in light of them day by day. Help us to be people who know your forgiveness, who throw ourselves at your mercy. And know that the Lord Jesus has died to save us. And know that the Lord Jesus treats us in a way we don't deserve. And comforts us. Because he has provided for us in his death. And being recipients of your forgiveness, may we be people who are gracious to others. Who treat them better than they deserve to forgive as we have been forgiven. Help us, Father, as we go through this life to remember that you are indeed fulfilling your plans and purposes for us. That your plan is to make us more and more like Jesus now and to bring us to glory with you in the end. you are using whatever means working all things for the good of those who love you and so we pray that in the midst of whatever trials and tribulations we may face 
you help us to trust your loving hand. With people who don't seek revenge, but leave that to you, and the trust that you are doing your work in our hearts and lives, even when we don't understand. So, Heavenly Father, we ask once again that you keep reminding us of your promises. Help us to keep them always before us. Help us to speak of them to each other. To keep reminding each other who we are, what you've done for us, where we're going. So that we don't get sucked in to the thinking of this world. So that while we live in this world and interact with this world and uh, do all kinds of things in this world, we don't in the end have our hearts in this world. So help us, Lord, to love each other, to encourage each other, to spur each other on to love and good deeds as we see the day approaching day when you bring in that new creation and we come to our true home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, Joseph understands that uh, whatever the brothers did to them, that's evil, God meant it for good. Uh, so did Peter in Acts 2. Uh, whatever evil did that was done to Jesus, it was for the good of the people. Our God is sovereign. Uh, but he's not just sovereign, he's merciful, all loving, all good. Uh, for in the cruel death of his son, the price for our sin is paid. And that in him we can inherit the promised land, the new creation, where we can enjoy his 